Hey, what up? It's Mark Carter. I'm the pastor of Fierce Church. Welcome to our podcast. I'm so pumped that you're able to join us today. I hope this encourages you, inspires you, strengthens you, gives you hope to keep pressing on. And it's my prayer that this sermon gives you a more expansive view of God's love for you. Enjoy the message. So my family and I like to watch a show kind of all together, some kind of a family show. And when we get done with one, we get to another. One of our favorites over the past couple of years is the Goldbergs. And some of you might know about them. The mom and dad, the married couple, is Bev and Murray. But I got to thinking about just how many dysfunctional couples have been in TV sitcoms over the years. So in the chat, put the couple you think is the most dysfunctional as I list these. So you have Andy and Angela from The Office. You've got Rachel and Ross from Friends. Maybe Tom and Ann from Parks and Recreation. Then you've got, of course, Al and Peg from Married with Children. We're going to be going back in time a little bit here now. Sam and Diane from Cheers. How many remember them? Some of you might remember Joni and Chachi from Happy Days. We're going to give a real throwback now. How about Burns and Houlihan from MASH? Of course, you've got Archie and Edith, for those who want something a little bit more from their generation, from All in the Family. And just in case you feel like we left out one of these really prehistoric couples, what about Fred and Wilma from the Flintstones? So go ahead and put down in the chat whichever one you think is the most dysfunctional. We're going to be tempted sometimes to take cues about how we treat our spouse Maybe from our family of origin, maybe from something we saw in a movie, maybe from decades of television sitcoms, or something we just saw on Pinterest. We get these ideas from all over the place, and they definitely shape us. So in this message, we're going to learn how to love our spouse from following the example of Christ himself. God uses marriage language to describe his love toward us. And what's really cool is this marriage language is not only a picture of how God wants us to understand Jesus' relationship to the church, but it's also instruction about how he wants us to best love our spouse. So there's a bit of a blueprint here. Let's listen in. Ephesians 5.25, we'll start. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that's the Bible, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Sounds like a real killer upgrade. That she might be holy without blemish. Verse 28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Now he goes for a throwback, man. He goes all the way back to Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he spins it in a a way that we're not anticipating. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoa. So somehow marriage from day one was always about Christ in the church in some sense. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Man, that is so good. We're not going to get through 
near as deep as we could possibly go on that. But important to know, God is not saying that each partner fundamentally, fundamentally does different things. Okay, how individuals receive love may differ in some ways, but love will include respect. Respect will include, or respect is a form of love. We don't want to get nitpicky about the words. God is saying, go all in in loving and respecting. But God is also saying, love them as I have loved you and as I love you. Unfortunately, we're sometimes fuzzy about the specifics of how God is loving us. Unless we understand that God relates to us as a trinity in his love for us, we won't really be able to enjoy the love of God. John Owen was not only the premier theologian of his time, but of almost any time. To be sure, he's the most famous English theologian. Owen was 100% orthodox, but in his orthodoxy, he helps us to understand some of the nuances of how we relate to God. And like all good theologians, he's not adding to the scripture, he's just revealing what is already there. One of his favorite topics was the Trinity. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, we mean that God is a what that is also three who's. See, Christians worship one God, but that one God is three distinct persons that we relate to distinctly. And Owen was absolutely emphatic that nobody has anything to do with God really in the abstract. There's no relating to some abstract being called God. You can deal with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the gospel of the triune God is one of a Father who loves the Son, who by His Spirit unites us to the Son so that we might share in the Son's life before the Father. This gospel, it's a Trinitarian thing. In his book, Communion with God, John Owen brilliantly makes the case that we have distinct communion with each person of the Trinity. And he takes this from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Just as they are distinct persons, we fellowship with them in those distinct ways. In each relationship, a different aspect of God's heart is emphasized. And here's what Owen puts forth. Communion with the Father is characterized by love. We saw that in the text. Communion with the Son is characterized by grace. We saw that. And communion with the Holy Spirit is characterized by comfort. Now, just a couple asterisks. Communion with one of them doesn't leave the others out. It's like the other, it's not like the other two can't come to the meeting. Okay, And every person is concurring with the work and acting of the others. We can't say that one person is separate from the others. You can't chop off the son and worship the son all by himself, and the father's like, well, I don't agree with this. No, they're all, they're all one, even though you're relating to them kind of in different ways. And when you worship one, you're worshiping them all. To worship the son is to worship the son of the father. So you're always doing it all with all of them, and yet they're uniquely revealing aspects of their love for us when you relate to that person in particular. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's what it is. Now, here's where today's sermon hinges. Unless we understand enjoying the love of God, it will be difficult for us to understand how to love spouses or anyone else as God loves us. Okay, fellowship with the Father is characterized by love. Remember verse 14 said, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So often, for so many of us, we don't think of God the Father as a lover. What do we know about the Father's 
love for us? Well, first, we know God is love. 1 John 4.8 says, God is love, and anyone who doesn't love others has never known him. Now, let's not confuse this. This isn't suggesting that love is God. That would be false. It's saying we only understand love, really, when we look at how God loves us. Love comes from him. He is the one who shows us what it is. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's one of my favorite Bible words, by the way, propitiation. We have no need to use it in common English language today, but it's one of the coolest words. What it means is turning wrath into favor. That's what God's love does for us. Rightly deserved wrath turns into favor because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But God is saying he himself is the definition of love. What else? Well, Jesus came to reveal the character and the heart of the Father. Sometimes we think, well, you know, Jesus loves me. I don't know about the Father, though. No, Jesus came to show us the heart of the Father. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. That's Jesus. We think of him as merely, you know, the Father's kind of stern and thunderous and distant from us. Now, here's where Owen comes in, and he writes this in his book, Communion with God. He says, at the best, many think there's no sweetness at all in the Father, except what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Christ. Now, it is true, the blood of Christ is the way of communication, but the free fountain and spring of all love and grace and mercy is in the bosom of the Father. He's saying the Father is kind of like the sun in our solar system the source of all life and all heat. Jesus is the beam of light that finds us in the cold. You ever been like in a cold house or cold room and you, you find that spot on the carpet or whatever, you get right in that sunbeam and it starts to warm you up? The son of eternal love, Jesus, originates. The beam that Jesus is reveals what? Reveals actually what is from the Father. So the son is coming out of the Father's love. And compassion. It's not that the Father is all distant and the Son is the nice one. No, the Son is the streaming of the Father's love. All the Father's love is then given to us in Christ. Here's what else. There's no need to ask for the Father's love. He doesn't love you reluctantly. Did you know that? John 16, 26. Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, then you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Dearly, Jesus says, you don't need to convince the Father to love you. He already loves you. That's why he sent me. It was love that caused the sending of the Son. It wasn't that the Son convinced the Father to love you. He had to talk him into something. God's love, unlike anybody else in the world, is free and never dependent on anything you even did at all. He just loves you. Here's what else we know. The Father's love is compassionate and tender and protective. Now, we're going to look at some motifs. Separate all the weaknesses and imperfections. God only has imperfect things to show us, to try to explain his love to us. So take all the imperfection out of these motifs, and we're going to see the greatness of God's love. Psalm 103, 13. Just as a father has compassion 
on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isaiah 66, 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Mothers, think how tenderly you love and want to comfort a baby that might be in pain. Fathers, think about the compassion you might have to your child if it gets hurt or gets a gash or gets something, you know, that is dangerous to it. You're going to have compassion on that child. The father's the same way. What about a shepherd? Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Isaiah 40, 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he gathers the lamb. He ain't got them on a leash. He's not like yanking them. Come on, come on. He's holding them tenderly in his arms. Goes on to say, and carry them in his bosom, right next to his heart. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. God calls us sheep because like sheep, he knows we're not smart enough to avoid foolish dangers. Do you ever feel like God is like, oh my gosh, not again. This girl, this guy, what is wrong with them? No, he knows these are sheep. They do not very smart things. They walk into dangerous situations that you think they know better, but they don't. God knows that's what we are. He leads us to where we should go and he keeps us out of all kinds of grave dangers that we don't know about. Think about that shepherd leading that sheep. The sheep doesn't know all the traps, all the maybe predators that the shepherd knows where they are. Shepherd continues to lead them. God continues to lead us. What about protection? Matthew 23, 73. How often I've wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The Lord longs to hold us close and protect us from the horrors of sin. Sin hurts us. God says, no, I don't want them to experience the consequences of sin. I want to hold it back and hold them to myself as if they're under my wings. This is why God calls us to obedience because sin hurts. Unless, and unless we see this command to love God through obedience as an expression of the love of God, we're going to resist it. We're going to be stubborn about it. We're going to be grudging about it instead of enjoying it. Let me say it a different way. The reason God asks you to obey is because of his love for you. It's not that like he has chores for you to do. It's not like there's things that he's like, well, I want you to do something. No, it's I don't want them hurt. So in my love, I'm asking you to obey. So do you have some areas God's asking you to obey and it's hard? Well, it's because he loves you. That is the why he's asking you to do anything because of his great love. The father loves you so much, he offers you as a valuable gift to Jesus himself. Think about it. He's not going to give something worthless to Jesus. It's not like he's looking around heaven and he's like, oh, I got this thing in the junk drawer. I guess I'll give it to Jesus. No, he would only give that of which is the highest value to God the Son. John 17, 6 says this. Jesus is praying. He's talking to the Father. He says, I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. He says, Father, you gave me them. They were always yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. The Father gives the church to Jesus. And remember Ephesians 5, we talked about it at the beginning. Remember it said, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is what he's doing to us while we're on earth. He's sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus washes us. He takes this gift and he says, I'm going to make it even more beautiful. And he washes us during our time on earth 
as we're progressing to heaven. Okay, so that's pretty intense. That's pretty amazing, all those ways that God loves us. But how do we respond to the love of the Father? Here's number one. Have confidence about God's intent to do you good. God intends to do you and I good just like he's been doing good to us. He's going to keep doing good to us, and we should have confidence in that. Romans 5, 6 said, remember, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners. His doing good to us wasn't because we were already doing good. It was when we weren't doing anything right that he came and said, I'm going to do good to him. Well, you can trust that he's going to keep doing good to us. And think about this. While you weren't doing anything necessarily right, God gave you the best thing that he had, which was God the Son. If he gives you Jesus, he'll give you lesser things as well. Think about it this way. If someone gifts you a house, and it's like a mansion, it's, it's the most beautiful place you've ever seen. If they'll give you the house, well, then they'll also give you five bucks, right? Like, it's not like they're like, well, no, I gave you the house. I'm not giving you $5. God will keep giving you good stuff and keep being good to you. He already gave you the best thing. Then, of course, he'll give you lesser things as you keep walking with him. Here's number two. Rest in his victories on your behalf. Delight in his delighting in you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God wins victory after victory and is always with you. He celebrates and sings because of you, and he will refresh your life with his love. God is constantly winning for you. He's constantly winning for us. Being the delight of the one whose delight most matters may be the most important, most amazing feeling in the world. Like just reflecting on knowing that the one whose opinion is most important delights in me and celebrates over me. Rest in that fact. Hey, man, nobody else might even like you. And there might be times in your life really where that feels true. But God delights in you. I sometimes think about how much I love my kids. Like as I'm going to bed, you know, like it's the end of the day and I'm crawling into bed and I just think about one of my kids. I just think about aspects of their personality. Think about how awesome they are. Think about these different things that I love about them. Dude, I'm fallen flesh. If I think of that about my own kids, knowing all the you know, issues that they have, and they're not perfect or anything, but I still can't help but swell with love for them. God feels the same way, only without any tainted sin in his heart that any good parent would feel. If you have no one else, you have God's special attention, special affection, special celebration. And God wants us, every one of us to get there. You know, there's a wisdom in walking around on planet Earth knowing, hey, man, I have people that love me, and that's true, and that love is real, and I want to be as good a friend as I can and receive people's love and have confidence in, in my family and the people around me. But it's also true that it's wise to remember Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's always good to come back to this truth. Hey, man, you know what? The only one I really have is God. At the end of the day, everybody else might leave me but I still have God. Hey, um, you can't count on everyone always treating you fairly or honoring that which is honorable, but you can count on God. You can count on God to, no matter what's going down, He's still delighting in you. He's still celebrating you. He's still enjoying you. And here's number three. Recognize how His love, this is important, is different from yours. God's love is different from yours and mine. And Sometimes it might seem like semantics, but it's not just semantics. We need to think about this. While we have the duty to love God, 
God chooses to love us. We're kind of like, we should love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is obedience. That's what a creature that has been created is commanded to do. That's the right thing. That's the appropriate thing. But we don't really choose it in the same way that God chooses to love us. Again, Romans 5, 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came. And just at the right time, he died for sinners. Um, we had no choice in the matter. Oh, we were dead in our sin. We were not paying attention. God says, I'm going to go now. Before they do anything right, I'm going to go and I'm going to love them. God's love goes first. We can only love in response. His love goes before ours. Think about this. The father loves the child even when the child doesn't even know the father yet. I loved my kids when they were still in their mama's belly. Like, they didn't even know I existed. And probably for the first while, they didn't know I really existed. They didn't know me, much less love me. And just in the same way, the Father loves you before you're paying attention. The Father loves you before the dawn of the world. The Father already loves you. Our love can't love Him first. Our sin has so distorted us that a holy God should not only not want us, but He should reject us. And yet, He loves us and comes to us anyway. Think about this. Humans don't love God for nothing. We love Him because. We love Him because everything about Him is desirable and beautiful and perfect. We see Him and we can't help but love Him when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to His perfections. Our sin-tainted hearts made us spiritually blind, and yet He goes first and gives us spiritual discernment to see His beauty and desirability. How about this? God's love, unlike ours, God's love is constant while our love wanes. Hey, man, you might love God most of the time, a lot of the time. But in terms of how you treat him, you are not always loving him. God is always constantly loving us. Our love wanes. The love of God is like himself. He's unmoving. He's constant. He's not capable of increasing or decreasing love. You don't have to worry that it's going to be fickle or moving around on you. Our love is like us. It's inconstant. It can go up. It can go down depending on the mood we're in, depending how much rebellion is living in us for the day. It can grow, but it can also decline. In our weakness, we change every day, but his love does not change. So here's a question that we all might be asking. Does God love me even when I'm sinning? Yes, he loves his people, not their sinning. But he loves his people even when they are sinning. He never loves sin. And he never loves when we are sinning because it hurts him, it hurts us, and it hurts others. But he always loves his people. The love of God itself is an eternal purpose and act of his will. And this is no more changeable than God himself. Now, no question, man. He's going to rebuke his people. He chastens them. He even hides his face from them at times. We even read in the Bible, he smites them sometimes. He fills them with a sense of his indignation but he will never take his love from them. He will never take his love from you. So what do we do? Number four, we believe that the Father loves you. Believe that the Father loves you. Here's the secret and why so few people are enjoying God's love. It is reflecting on his love, which will make it more real to us. The more you reflect on his love, the more you will have it shed abroad. In your heart, the more you'll experience it. If you don't believe this by faith, I've been spitting word at you this whole time now, but if you don't grab that word with your faith and believe it, 
you will not experience him very much. The truth of the love of God must be received by faith and then reflected upon with intentionality. One thing that will hurt this process is often this maybe unintentional assumption that Father God just must be mad at me. Hey, can I encourage you? Don't foster thoughts like that. Don't foster that God is a hard God. Don't foster that God is an angry God. This is what the unfaithful servant did. And he was like, and the Lord confronted him. He said, oh, you thought that I was a hard master, did you? Well, that's not even true. If you think about like God like an angry dad, I mean, you're not going to go approaching an angry dad, are you? I remember when I was a kid, man, I was acting up in the car. I must have been, you know, four or something, four or five. And I was acting up in the car, and I, my dad says, I'm going to spank you when you get home. You know, I just want to reach around and get in an accident or something. So as soon as we pull into the driveway, man, zip, I'm out of the car. I go and I hide under my bed. Why? Because I'm afraid of dad. Well, I fall asleep under that bed, and the parents start to get worried. And so now they're like asking around the neighbors, have you seen Mark? Have you seen him? They didn't call me Carter at that point. Have you seen him? And they're, they're getting really worried. What did they want? They wanted to just be with me. They'd forgotten all about dad's threat. But I ran from his presence because I was afraid. Can I encourage you? Hey, man, don't have hard thoughts about God. Don't run away from him. If we're picturing him as always angry, we're never going to want to come into that kind of father's presence But if we believe he's tender and affectionate, we'll always want to come into his presence. Okay, number five, we return his love. God says, I know that you're not going to be able to love me the way that I love you in a perfect way, but even so, I'm asking you to return my love. Proverbs 23, 26, this is a father speaking to a son and hear the heart of God in this. Oh, my son, give me your heart. May your eyes take delight in following my ways. God is saying, make me what you love. So here's the question. How then do we live out the Father's love for our spouse? If we've gone ahead and said, I'm going to love you, God. I'm going to make you the very heart of my heart. How should that result? What should that turn out like in our marriages? Well, here's five ways to love our spouse like God loves us. Number one, Since there's no need to ask for God's love, our spouse should not have to work to get into or to keep our favor. We need to be really quick to tell our spouse, hey, you don't have to like always be making up for some debt with me. We need to be quick to say, I forgive you. We need to be quick to say, "Um, it's okay to make mistakes. We don't want to be holding things over our spouse's head. Don't keep back your love. So saying out of your mouth stuff like, hey, it's just all good. I just love you. There's just grace. You say, well, Carter, I'm afraid if I do that, they'll just treat me like a doormat. Well, you shouldn't put up with people actually treating you like a doormat. If they're really treating you like a doormat, um, we should have a conversation and you should remove yourself from that situation until they can learn to not treat you like a doormat. But that's a very extreme case. Um, Instead, communicate that you will love your spouse because you fear God, not on the basis of them always being particularly lovable. In other words, if they're treating you not perfectly, you say, hey, 
um, you're not being particularly lovable. I'm not saying this is okay, but I'm committed to loving you because I fear God. And it's a command. He's commanded me to love you no matter what you do. Like he loves me, I'm going to keep loving you. Here's number two. Since we can have confidence that God wants to do us good, we should build confidence in our spouse that we want to do them good. Many couples quit trying to woo their spouse. This is a very dumb idea, okay? I think everybody does it. I think guys sometimes do it a little bit more because they feel like once they married the girl, boom, I got her like that's I got to stop. I can stop working. But none of that images God very well, whether husband or wife. God didn't just win us. He continues to find ways to show us that he is pursuing us. So wooing them, pursuing them, making them feel desired. It's not really all just about being faithful over several decades and not leaving. I'm sure many of you, you've heard the joke, you know, um, the gal says, the wife says, oh, honey, you haven't told me you love me in like 20 years. And he's like, well, I told you at the wedding, if something changes, I'll tell you that it changed. And, you know, that sounds a little bit chuckly, but it's a really stupid plan. Okay, when you were dating, you were trying to convince them that you were a good idea because of how you were going to treat them. So, precious, let's go back. Convince them every day. It may be with gifts. It may be with dates. It may be with sex. It may be with quality time. It may be affection. It may be words of affirmation. And it's probably a healthy combination of all of those. But we never stop working at wooing them. Ladies, be suggestive and flirty. Whoever has the lower sex drive out of the two of you, be sexually accessible and smile while you're at it. Men, romance her and surprise her. Used to think through dates when you first started. Well, be unpredictable. Whisk her away on getaways. Number three, since God wants us to know that he delights in us, we should regularly communicate that we celebrate and delight in our spouse. There should be regular communicated praise. Even if that's hard for you, God communicates it to you all over the scriptures. We should do it to our spouses. Whether or not, you know, they are the cultural standard of perfection, they need to hear from you that they are your standard of perfection. You know, I mean, it's like, I'm not denying that there's other attractive people in the world, but hot to me is my spouse. I think everyone else is a one and Kenzie is a 10. I tell her that. And I tell my own heart that because I just want to remind myself, hey, all these other gals are nothing compared to the highlight of my life. And I want her to know that that's what I'm meditating on. Every day, we should be on the lookout for things to praise and affirm about our spouse. For a job well done or a great try. For when they look great or when they've been faithful with something or when, man, they just didn't give up or anything and everything that you can catch them doing right for godly character, for the time that they were just really well-spoken, Tell them that you respect them. Tell her how much you believe in her, how much you value her perspective and insight. Regularly tell them what you admire about them. There's going to be seasons where it might just be all about their thing for a while, and we just need to get over that, man. That just needs to be how it goes. Sometimes we get into this weird non-biblical idea. Well, everything should be 50-50, some for them and some for me. No, in marriage, it's not 50-50. It's 100-100. And depending what season God has you in, you might have to step in. You might have to work a little harder than it feels like they're going in your direction at the same time. So I'll give you an example. When we first started the church, okay, this is back in like 2008, 2009, um, 
Kenzie really couldn't even come to a bunch of stuff. So if y'all ever feel left out, just know Kenzie couldn't even come to the things that we were doing. She was at home. She was taking care of these kids because we'd do nighttime things. And those were like the only events that we did. And so, we, dude, we had babies. There's nothing that we could do. And Kenzie was like, I'm stepping in. This is my role right now is to help Carter Mark do his stuff. Well, you know, years later, one of the highest joys of my life, she was faithful during that time. And there's a whole lot of blessing and fruit that has resulted of that. Well, one of the highest joys in my life right now is honestly that I get to support her and celebrate her and cheer her as she goes back to nursing school. Like, it is such a thrill for me to know she, dude, there was times she was just laying down her life to do my thing. And now I get to lay down my life to do her thing. What is the point? The point is, hey man, don't always be keeping score. God knows the score, but he doesn't keep, does he ever treat you like he's keeping score? No, he doesn't. We just do whatever season we're in, help them, do whatever it takes. You know, it can take a whole lot of humility because sometimes you got to die to self in order to be able to support them in the way they need supported and God wants you to support them in that season. Whatever we do, friends, we want to genuinely celebrate the wins of the other person. It's not all about your wins. It's about whatever God celebrates that they're winning. Be an extension of God's love toward them. Tell them how proud you are of them. Brag about them to others in their presence, but even if they're not around. Sometimes this is just also about reminding ourselves, I am blessed to be married to a person like that. And here's number four. Since God's love for us is constant and never wanes, we need to remember that our love for our spouse is an action and not a feeling, and we want to help them be encouraged, it's not going to wane. We need to be constantly loving them even when they're not acting lovable. This is an internal commitment to treat them better than they deserve, to remind yourself that the devil's working against you. It's not maybe just that you two aren't getting along. There's somebody else in the room trying to make it go worse. Show them that you decidedly, even when you don't feel like it, you're still going to love and serve your spouse. By the way, how's serving going lately? How are you doing serving your spouse? I don't mean the chores that you've kind of figured out everybody does. I mean proactively going beyond just doing your duty and trying to wow them. How are you doing trying to convince them that, hey man, it's a really good idea to be married to you? Here's number five. In order to image Father God, We should not only communicate that we will never abandon our spouse, but we should reject all such thoughts. Now, I've told this to some of you before, but I just want to challenge you, man. Take the D word off the table. Don't ever say the word divorce in the presence of your spouse. Don't ever say it in your own heart. Take it out of your own vocabulary. Unless they're abusive or evil or unfaithful, there is no out. It's called death. That's how marriage ends. Our words really matter. So just think about this, man. If you talk about divorce, it starts to become a maybe. Let's not even talk about it. Let's tell our spouses things that remind them how permanent this is from our perspective. In the hard times, it's even more important that you speak life and speak, hey, this is a sure thing for me. Don't you worry about me. I'm in it to win it with you forever. But then especially when you've said some hurtful words, when hurtful words have been spoken, yo, you need like 20 positives to even come close to taking the sting out of that negative. So are you using your words to remind your spouse, hey, I'm with you to the end? Can I give you a couple versions of that just as a model? You don't have to steal these, although you can. Um, 
part of being a church pastor, part of doing this thing is you have to come emotionally to the, to the awareness that you got to hear this, man, so hear this the right way. I love everybody in our church, and I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to lay down my life. Like, I'm, I, will, I will die for you, dude. If a wolf comes near you, I will rip off their doggone head, and I will go down with the ship. But I also know that I'm preaching to a parade most of the time. Most folks are not going to be here forever. You know what I'm saying? God's going to bring new people. We live in a very mobile society, and so people are going to move on. And one of the things that Kenzie and I have to frequently remind ourselves is, hey, man, everybody else might go. Everybody else might go, but I ain't going anywhere. I'm with you to the end. And we'll just remind ourselves of that, one another of that, especially when it feels like people are just getting, you know, randomly mad at us or moving away or whatever it is. It's like, baby, I'll say something like this. I'll look her in the eye, but baby, it's just you and me now. Like, that's all it ever was going to be. It was you and me and Jesus. That was the whole vision. We're going to love these people with our last drop of blood, but it's only you and me, and I'm with you all the way to the end. Another kind of image that we use is, so back in the old times, I think, uh, it might be kind of romantic and sweet for a boy to ask a girl if he could walk her home. I don't know if y'all still do that, okay? I don't know if you get sued or canceled for suggesting such a thing, but back in, in the old times, like in times I remember, it was cute and sweet and nice to say, hey, can I walk you home? Well, one of the things I like to tell Kenzie is, I'm going to walk you all the way home. And what I mean is, I know that I am her temporary husband. I know that Jesus is her real husband. And so I want to remind her, Kenzie, my objective, assuming that the Lord allows me to, I want to hold your hand all the way to the master's doorway. And I want to put your hand in his hand and say, my job here is done. She is now with her real husband. But I'll use the phrase, I'm going to walk you all the way home. Kenzie, I ain't going anywhere. Like you can rest assured till your dying day, assuming I'm still alive, I will walk you home because my job is not done until you are holding Jesus' hand instead of mine. Hey, um, you're welcome to steal any of those you want or make up your own or do other ones you've heard. But the point is you've got to communicate to your spouse. Hey, I ain't going anywhere. The D word is not an option. I'm in it to win it. We'll get counseling. We'll do whatever we got to do, but I am with you. Now, there's a saying that you've probably heard before. Hurt people hurt people. And that tends to be true. When you see somebody that's hurting people a lot, often there's something in their background that really hurt them. But it's also true that people who are intentionally believing and proactively reflecting on the love of God, they love people. And it's likely that they'll get so full of God's love that they'll love their spouses and everybody else much better because they've been reflecting on the love of God. God wants you to personally experience and know the love of the Father. And He also wants your spouse and your friends and your family and this church to experience His love through you and through me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would fill us to the tippy top overflowing with the love of God. I pray that we would not be able to shake these thoughts and ideas out of our minds. Lord, we want to be so enamored with your love for us that we cannot help but pour out that love back onto you and onto everybody we encounter. And I pray for a fresh baptism. I pray for a fresh anointing into these marriages 
Everyone that is within the sound of my voice right now, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for a fresh anointing of the love of God to overtake and to heal and to restore and to rebuild and to cast fresh vision and to believe that the love of God can conquer anything. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. If you don't have a home church and you're looking for a Bible-preaching community that has its heart set on passionately knowing Jesus and being His witness in our generation, check out Fierce.Church. We'd love for you to join us either digitally or in person. Also, if you're looking for leadership development-related content, don't forget to check out the Fierce Leadership Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast from. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to support this ministry. It's because of you that this is possible. You can click on the link in the description to give now or visit fierce.church for more information. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe, share it with your friends, click on the share button, take a screenshot, and share it on social media or wherever you would share such things. Whatever challenges you're facing, I know you can make it. Don't give up. Hang on to Jesus. He won't let go of you. Jesus loves you so much, and we love you. I hope someday we get to meet in person. Thanks again for listening.